Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Not Safe for Wonks. We're back with you, as always, with another exciting episode. And we're just so thrilled to be here today. I'm Kennedy Cooper. I'm Brandon Buchanan. Leia Rose. And we are joined by the wonderful, the outspoken, the thoughtful, the just incredible guest, Samalise Lopez. Running out of adjectives here. I know. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me and creating a space for me to be on your show. I'm calling in from the boogie down of the South oh, Bronx in the 15th not. Congressional District. Awesome. We're, we're yeah. super excited to have you yeah. on, and we have been since we got the Always date. Always so. a pleasure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're very yeah, I'm excited up. that there's shows like yours that give a platform to people like me and people in the community. Because it's so, hard no, for grassroots no, people we say like it all the time that we are basically reluctantly engaging with electoralism because we have to because we need mm-hmm. things we need these progressive policies you know and so we are always looking for candidates like yourself who like i've watched several of your videos and you just tell it like it is and that's what we like so we're we've been very <laughs> excited to have that you know that passion and and that and and everything here today and just mm-hmm. it's it's awesome so uh Semelis, if you could just start mm-hmm. off by telling the audience a little about yourself and sure. how you got to be running for New York's 15th District of Congress. Sure. Uh, so I'm Puerto Rican and Dominican. I was born in Bayamón, Puerto Rico. And my mother's from the Dominican Republic. Uh, she divorced my dad when I was about two years old. And then we came to New York City at a time that there were a lot of sweatshops in the community. And she worked 12 to 13 hours to make ends meet uh, to survive. And she was also a victim of domestic violence because she met my stepdad and the situation wasn't a good situation for a long time. And because of that, we ended up in the homeless shelter system in New York City to escape what was going on at home. Uh, And that basically, you know, was a very difficult time for all of us. And my brother was born in the shelter system. So I was exposed to a lot of things when I was growing up. Sometimes there wasn't enough money for a babysitter. And then my mom would pick me up from my elementary school and we would go to the sweatshop and I would do my homework there with my mom's work uh, co-workers. Wow. And sometimes uh, we didn't have enough money to pay the Con Edison bill. Uh, you all know what Con Edison is, right? Uh, you have Con Edison down there where you are? It's like electricity. So we didn't have enough money to pay for the electricity some, at times. And then I would do my home with the candles as well. I remember that often growing up. Or sometimes there were food scarcity issues where you had to go to the pantry to supplement what you know my mom could bring in. And I say this because I'm definitely a directly impacted person living in the community, but my story is not unique to people that live in the South Bronx and in, mon- in many other areas of the United States of America. Um, there are a lot of people like me struggling to get by, like my family. And you know, one of the things that got me involved in community organizing are those personal experience that are you know deeply personal things that a lot of people go through still go through and we need to basically level the playing field for people to be able to get ahead and i think that politics is a good way of doing that um but politics that is led by a movement and that is led by community activism and organizing on the ground politics that is informed by directly impacted and a kind of politics that is transformational, that amplifies the organizing that's already being done on the ground and that elevates the movement. So those are the kinds of politics, or that's the kind of politics that I'm interested in. Um, you know, leaving behind a broken transactional political system and embracing the politics of transformation so that our 
politics can be more reflective of the community values and the needs that we're struggling with. And Tell then, us. Um, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I wanted to ask a question about Congress. So then uh, this came about. So the current congressperson, Jose Serrano, who's actually really progressive um, in his own right, he's stepping down because he has Parkinson's. So now on June 23rd, 2020, there's going to be an open seat. And there's a bunch of corporate Democrats running for the role, taking huge sums of money from real estate developers, pharmaceuticals, corporate PACs, uh, racist donors as well. I mean, it's pretty incredible. Um, and people in the progressive space and in the movement space suggested that I do it. Um, and at the time, I didn't really want to risk my job and uproot my life. And when I saw how these races were being run in my district, I was like, you know what, I have to take a stance. You know, there's people here in the streets taking very dangerous foreign policy stances, uh, you know, in terms of the Muslim community, you know, few sums of money from real estate are influencing the outcome of this election. And we need to take a stand and take a stand against corruption, big money in politics, corporate Democrats, and reclaim the soul of the Democratic Party in the bluest county in the entire country, which is here in the Bronx. So... You know, I decided after many months to join in um, and here I am, you know, talking to you all and knocking on doors and trying to get on the ballot. Yeah. Now, um, New York 15 has something of uh, a crowded primary. Mm -hmm. There's, um, by my count, 13 or 14 people on the Democratic ballot. How are you endeavoring? Well, to... we're in the petitioning phase right now, so oh. that may change once petitioning is done, which is... Okay. It's going to be done in another five weeks because this was our first week of petitioning. Oh, I'm so sorry. It may I, didn't, I, I don't know about the specifics of the New York primary system, but yeah. in any case, there is a thick mm -hmm. amount of competition yeah, there is, for definitely. the nomination of the of New York mm -hmm. 15. So, how are you trying to differentiate yourself from the other candidates? What makes you unique? No, definitely. I think my lived experiences make me very unique, and how I've been organizing for a while. In addition to that, because of my earlier experiences with homelessness and food scarcity, I dedicated my professional life to building housing in the community. So I've built housing in the Bronx and in New York City through the organizations that I've worked for, uh, whose mission it was to build housing for people coming out of the shelter system. So I have personal lived experiences, academic experiences, uh, and professional experiences as well. Um, I have a master's in urban planning with a focus in community housing development from the Wagner School of Public Service at NYU. So I feel like all those unique experiences make me qualified uh, for the role. Uh, and I also used to work for Congressman Serrano. So he gave me my first start in public service when I graduated college and I would do housing casework for him as a congressional aide. So I was brought on as an intern through a fellowship and then they hired me for about a year. And I would help out with the different administrative tasks and housing casework and immigration casework. So that exposed me to the inner workings of a congressional office. Um, and I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, was that your question? Sorry, it's kind of loud where I'm at. I, I'm sorry. My question was, uh, how are you differentiating yourself from the other oh, uh, yeah, definitely. members in your field? Right. So like I said earlier, there's a lot of corporate Democrats running in this race, taking... Uh, you know, dirty money from uh, places that are oppressing our communities. And I've we've been successful in our campaign differentiating ourselves, carving out an authentic grassroots leftist lane in this race that nobody else has. 
So that has meant us getting the endorsement of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, outside of AOC, we're the only congressional candidate that has gotten that endorsement uh, in New York City. So that has definitely differentiated us. And uh, as of last Friday, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Courage to Change PAC has decided to take a leap of faith in our campaign and endorsed us formally. And that definitely signaled to the progressive leftist base in the Bronx and in New York City as a whole that we are the true grassroots authentic campaign that is fighting for the community and fighting for the working class and fighting for workers that are the ones that create the wealth in this country. So, you know, that has brought on a lot of attention and, and media and press, which is great because it's helping us raise our profile and raise a little bit more money than we had and have access to more volunteers. Uh, so it's been great in terms of amplifying our message and what we're about. I was literally just about to ask, you've got that AOC endorsement. A lot of people are meeting you now this week for the first time. Obviously, <laughs> we've been following you guys for like a few months, but they are getting like their very first impressions um, of you and of your values. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. What excites you the most about uh, winning this primary? And also, um, you talk a lot about how your lived experience differentiates mm -hmm. yourself from the field. Can you talk a little bit about your district? And I guess this would be my first question. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about your district and what you have in common with your district and what their lived experience is like? Oh, definitely. So a lot of people have my lived experience of having come from the shelter system, of having been like waiting on lines in food pantries, soup kitchens, uh, a lot of victims of domestic violence, uh, some op opioid addictions is definitely something that is very troubling in the community. You have high levels of asthma and respiratory illnesses because of the way that the neighborhoods have been cut up because of people like mm -hmm. Robert Moses that cut up the South Bronx. And there's a lot of trucks that go through our neighborhoods, especially in the Port Morris, Hunts Point neighborhoods of the Bronx, probably has the highest rate of asthma in the entire country. So these are all experiences that people identify with very closely. Um, and that's one of the reasons that we're fighting for a homes guarantee to build 12 million units of social supportive and permanent housing over the next decade, why we're fighting for a Green New Deal for the South Bronx so that we can save the lungs of our children, which are our future, and why we're fighting for universal child care. Uh, you know, drawing back from my earlier experiences, my mom not having enough money for babysitting that I would have to do my homework at her sweatshop. So those are things that people are experiencing in the community. And we tested our, our platform when we first came up with it. And then we asked the community as we door knocked and as we organized, they're like, well, is this something that speaks to you? And by far, the number one issue that people are struggling with is lack of affordable housing. It's homelessness. It's being able to uh, live in dignified conditions and getting the repairs that they deserve. Uh, you know, that's something that is rampant throughout the congressional district. And people are very receptive to our platform and our message. And they love the fact that they've We've rejected corporate PAC money and real estate developer money to finance our campaign because they want a working class champion in Washington, D.C. that's going to put the needs of their children and, you know, their grandchildren um, at the forefront and not the donors. Running in the South Bronx, right? Mm hmm So that area, I mean, you're in New York. Mike Bloomberg was the mayor of New York for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about, like, the weird relationship there is 
between like working class people who are struggling with housing. You know, that rent will take up three quarters of your check sometimes um, mm -hmm. versus someone who is um, not just Bloomberg, but a lot of your opponents in this congressional race are spending a lot of money to influence their opinions. So what kind of opinion do people in your neighborhood have of um, not just Mike Bloomberg, but of other opponents who are corporately funded um, and just are you talking about in terms of the presidential candidates? Uh, I just mean, I mean, you can talk about the presidential candidates if you'd like, but I just mm -hmm. like to think more about their relationship to capitalism and corporate America and money mm -hmm. and politics in general. Um, mm -hmm. Because a lot of people who are in really rough financial situations, I mean, I'm from Zone 5 in Atlanta, um, mm -hmm. ha think of that mm -hmm. as something to idealize. Right. So... In our door knocking, what we're seeing, because I've been a Bernie Sanders supporter since 2016, and one of the things that I forgot to mention is that I've been doing a lot of political organizing to create an independent grassroots political infrastructure outside of the Bronx Democratic establishment. So educating people around counting committee, local party positions, and identifying people that are directly impacted and community activists so they can access these positions so that we can put pressure on the party over time to change its ways and make sure that the party is more reflective of our needs and our values and priorities. So overwhelmingly, uh, you know, I see a lot of people in the community gravitating towards Bernie Sanders and this message of transformation. And they really love the fact that he's fighting to build a multi-work a multiracial working class coalition that's going to center priorities. And they love the way that he's fundraising for his campaign as well, because it speaks to people's priorities. And, you know, he's creating a space for the labor movement. He's always on the side of workers, whether he's supported by the major unions or not. And he's about worker solidarity and making sure that the 99% has access and that there's a radical distribution of political, social, and economic power that flows from these oligarchs that are controlling our democracy uh, and so that it can flow to us, to, to the working class, you know, who I said it, you know, earlier in the interview, but we are the ones that create the wealth in this country. So we need to access that wealth uh, and that power and it needs to be controlled by us and created by us. So a lot right. of people... In the Bronx that I've seen support Bernie Sanders because of that, because he represents that hope. Um, and they link him to people like Martin Luther King Jr., who before he died, he was talking about the importance of dismantling capitalism and dismantling systems of oppression that keep the working classes uh, separate from each other. And, you know, capitalism sometimes uses uh, race and uh, race also as a way of dividing. Uh, uh, so Bernie's Sanders message of building this multi-racial working class coalition resonates because people in the Bronx have a lot in common with people who are living in Appalachia, people who are living in Mississippi, you know, that may not, that may be low income, uh, you know, white folks, but, you know, we have in common a lot of each other because we're And, you know, it's really important to see beyond race and support the struggle against uh, capitalism, against you know corporate greed, against political corruption. That's what we all need to be uniting for to fight against. That is a That is enemy. So sometimes uh, politicians use you know counter tactics to pit us against each other, but you know the working class has to stick together to now, fight this fight. Uh, now, something I was curious about, given that you live uh, that you live in uh, in New York and have mm -hmm. grown up there is what do you and what do New Yorkers generally think of Michael mm -hmm. Bloomberg and his tenure mm -hmm. as 
New York City mayor. Because a lot of them praise his management style. You know, sometimes they like his strong man approach to getting things done, you know, whatever that means. But overwhelmingly, what I see is people love Bernie Sanders' message. Um, I would say it's like right now, based on what I'm seeing in my door knocking, it's like 60 40. I remember like 60 uh, there's Bernie, a, like 40 uh, for Bloomberg right now. New York Times had a uh, had a map of where people were donating from. And I think mm-hmm. Bernie had all of New York with the exception of Manhattan. And Manhattan mm-hmm. was split between Warren and um, Warren and Pete. Mm. Right. And that's interesting because if you look at that map, you'll see like the working class of people that are suffering, Peter Burlett making less than $40,000 a year, see Bernie as their last hope for radical change and uh, transformation. So, you know, it's interesting. You got to look at the geography and this is very important because Manhattan is very wealthy. Um, and basically Manhattan runs this city and it's up to the outer boroughs. It's up to people that have been you know, directly impacted by certain situations to rise up and seize this moment so that they can put an organizer in chief in the Oval Office to figure things out, um, you know, as well as uh, reaching out to, as well as supporting down ballot elections as well um, to create a change in this country from the bottom up. When we talk about creating change, there's a lot of issues that we could get into that affect working class people. But one that I think that isn't discussed enough that's a major part of your platform and which reflects the experiences of your life, the life of a lot of the lives of a lot of people in your district and the lives of a lot of people around this country uh, is issues of family justice and family Mm -hmm. law. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how we build up a system of family justice that doesn't Mm -hmm. leave so many children and young people and even adults and old people slipping through the cracks? Definitely. It's interesting that you asked that because that's a category in our literature and in our website. Uh, We're fighting for reproductive justice. And really, our platform is family focused Um, because compared to AOC's district, our district is a little bit more conservative in terms of how they view certain things. But one of the things that people at the doors have been saying to us is how happy they are that we're focusing on things like universal child care and working families, um, you know, so that we can create that justice that we need at the local level. So, you know, part of that is fighting for things like canceling student loan debt. You know, that's something that's crippling a lot of immigrant families uh, that send their kids off to school to get a better education. And now their kids are back at home because they can't afford to pay the student loans and start an independent life. And a lot of immigrant families that we've encountered say that that's a concern for them. Um, and they're gravitating towards Bernie because he's promising to cancel the student loan debt. Um, so all of that is connected to the family and the importance of investing in our collective goods and spaces like our parks our community gardens places where everybody can you know come together and have a sense of community i feel like one of the things that capitalism does is that it creates a sense of isolation and people will sometimes internalize or oftentimes they internalize uh you know failures uh that are really initiated by capitalism because the playing field is not level. This myth of you got to pick yourself up by your own bootstraps is a myth. I mean, that doesn't exist. Uh, yeah, actually, the, level play, yeah, the playing I, field is not level. Do you know what I mean? No, it's actually really funny because that whole pull yourself up by your bootstraps thing was a phrase intended 
to be like facetious or satirical in the sense mm-hmm. that like it's something that you cannot do. But so many people have turned it in around into this belief that this is a thing that you can and should be doing. It's ridiculous. No, yeah. it's unhealthy. And that causes a lot of internal conflict with people. It leads to things like mental illness. So that leads to things like people medicating their pain. Uh, so that's kind of like my view of the family, making sure that there's universal child care, making sure that we invest in domestic programs that address the root causes of poverty in our community, making sure that we, you know, not invest in the military budget in the way that it is now, because I think close to 70 percent of our budget is dedicated to the military and engaging in endless wars all over the world. I think that we should be investing in diplomacy and we should be taking the lead of directly impacted people in their own countries to see how they want to move forward um, and turn away from investing in the military industrial complex and investing in domestic programs that address the root causes of poverty so that our families can have a shot at the American dream. It's so funny because uh, I've seen presidential candidates who seemed completely surprised at what sanctions do uh, economically to working people in other countries. Um, mm-hmm. Most people who are like, if you're in an anti-war movement or you've ever been to an anti-war protest, like in your life, mm-hmm. uh, there's a long discussion that sanctions are a form of economic warfare. Uh, and they just, as a matter of fact, have a, a, a deleterious economic effect on the people that live in those countries and they can't get essential things that they need. And that's like the actual purpose of the sanctions is to cause pressure to the civilian population that works there. It's very rare to find one that's just targeted at the aristocrats. Right, and they wonder, oh, why do we have an immigration influx? I mean, I don't understand. Like, you know, make sure that we have strong trade agreements that incentivize businesses and corporations to, you know, create jobs here in the United States. Let's make sure that workers have ownership in the companies as well. Like over 50% is, you know, my, my dream for workers to share in those profits that these big corporations make, because again, they're the ones that create this wealth. Um, it's a lot of things that we need to incentivize. And in many ways, we definitely need a paradigm shift because most of the people in this country make, what, under $50,000 a year? So That's right. Around, a lot I think of them, 35 is the average rate, wage, yeah. Right. It's crazy. So it's like, who is this country working for? If the majority of Americans have a medium income of of $35,000, we need to create policy and economic policy that reflects the majority of Americans. And right now that's not happening because you have these oligarchs, you have billionaires controlling our politics and lobbyists controlling our politics that are not looking out for the best interests of the community, but how to make a buck. And this is what we're seeing with war profiteering as well, in these endless wars. It's a way for uh, you know some people in the 1% to, you know, make a buck out of, you know, um, you know, basically uh, way of, I'm losing my train of thought. Sorry, it's been a long day. <laughs> but no basically problem. looking, investing in endless wars and profiting off of people's pain. And the same thing we're seeing in healthcare. Insurance companies profiting off of people's pain. So this is morally unjust. It's wrong. And we need to put an end to it. And I'm glad that people are rising up and supporting people like AOC, Rashida Tlaib, the members of the squad, people like Bernie Sanders, people that are about transformational change because we need to reclaim the soul of the Democratic Party 
and we need to return it to its working class roots because it's been co-opted by corporate interests and the one percent the democrats as we know them now are not democrats anymore they're republican light and we need to inject the working class struggle and that idealism back into the democratic party and that's what races like mine are about that's what races like AOCs are about and like those are the transformative conversations that she's having all over the country to make sure that we create that space and that we reclaim our democratic values because right now we're lost in the wilderness. You mentioned some things along the lines of like worker ownership. Uh, you've several times referenced sort of like the creation mm -hmm. of wealth, value theory type mm -hmm. of stuff. I'm curious, where do you fall sort of on the uh, kind of capitalism, socialism divide personally? Bernie Sanders is asking for a 20% cut and you're asking for 50. So I get a sense of where you're coming from. Yeah, no, I think that like whoever's doing the work, whoever's like making these profits, like sh are the ones that should be getting something in return. I mean, don't you think? Absolutely. I mean, that, that's where I stand on it. I mean, I think it's great for people to, to earn a living and to have an innovative idea and take it to the next level. That's great. But we can't forget the workers that create that wealth. And this is also what I say in politics uh, that I've been saying on the campaign trail recently. We need to decommodify politics as well and like take big money out of the equation. Um, we need to invest in a strong labor movement. We need to make it easier for workers to unionize in their places of work. We need to protect our undocumented sisters and brothers that when they start getting organized because their wages are being stolen, the boss then comes in and calls ICE to report them. That's wrong. If this is the United States of America and we have certain ideals, we need to live up to those ideals. And we need to create safe spaces for everybody to be seen and to be heard and to live the American dream. And we need to focus again on economic policies that make sense for the vast majority of Americans. And right now, that's just not what we're seeing. And we yeah. need to fight for it. Absolutely. Because power never concedes. You have to demand, you have to organize, and you have to take it. You have to take power. Well put. Um, so I'm curious as a follow-up, we've talked mm -hmm. with a lot of people who, uh, you know, like uh, ourselves on this show, didn't just, we weren't just born leftists, right? Mm -hmm. um, so was there a particular inspirational person or moment or idea that kind of like solidified you into these like strong leftist stances that you have now? Well, I think we've been saying it throughout the interview, my personal experiences with lived oppression. Because uh, something that I mentioned in a Jacobin interview that I was on recently is that you can't discount people's lived experiences if they're not familiar with the label democratic socialism, right? Um, because lived experience is so important because that has informed my lens through which I see the world. And... Uh, you know, I saw my mom uh, being looked down upon when she went to the welfare office. And as an eight-year-old, I had this sense of indignation. And she doesn't speak English to this day. So I grew up translating for her, helping her navigate the world. Uh, and there's so many people like that in the community. And I've always had this sense of indignation that something was wrong, that I needed to fight, that I needed to stand up for something and for my people. Uh, so I guess 
yeah, I guess it's really simple. Like I didn't grow up learning about socialism and learning about uh, leftist policies because I'm against policy coming from an ivory tower as well, because I think, again, the policy needs to be written in a way that speaks to people's direct lived experiences and that they are the ones that need to set the tone Mm -hmm. and create the path for that. So lived experiences are so important. Like I said earlier, many people throughout the country, I think, have a similar experience, especially if you come from a working class background. And I think that what people want is to get ahead, to have a safe, stable home that they can come to every day. It's really simple. And I think that those needs, that desire to access the American dream, whatever that looks like for them, and, uh, you know, to feel at peace uh, once they come from work every day with the life that they've built. I think that's what everybody wants. And I think we should be creating a space for people to access that. Um, And people want to be happy. I mean, it sounds kind of corny, but (laughs) people want to be happy uh, and live like stress-free lives. And what better way of doing that than creating policies that lead people in that direction. Now, to go in an entirely different direction, there's a a virus going through the country now, right now, and it's being described Mm. as like a crisis, an emergency. Mm -hmm. But there's a long-running emergency in Puerto Rico Mm -hmm. that hasn't been getting too much attention. Uh, Mm -hmm. What, uh, how did, how did the president screw up in Puerto Rico? And how could that response have been better? And how could that response be better going forward? Right. I think he definitely views us as second class citizens. You know, obviously one of the things that he could have done better is made sure that FEMA coordinated and did what they needed to do on the ground and take leadership and guidance for people living on the island. Um, And basically, like, treat us with respect and do the same thing that he did. Um, when in the States, the hurricane devastated, you know, the response was pretty swift. And in Puerto Rico, it wasn't. And people are still struggling with that. And what's happening in Puerto Rico is vulture funds taking over the island and gentrifying the island for, you know, a billionaire class. So a lot of people are leaving Puerto Rico right now to New York City, to Florida, because they can't afford the island anymore. And the severe austerity measures are eliminating hospitals, eliminating schools, making it really expensive to live on the island. Uh, because of PROMESA, uh, the austerity bill that, you know, was enacted. Um, And then you have compounding that, this devastating hurricane that has impacted people's lives in such a ruthless way. And this administration has shown no compassion, uh, no love for the Puerto Rican people. And we're citizens of the United States, by the way, you know. Um, Maybe sometimes people in his administration forget, but we're American citizens. But we're treating, we're being treated as second, third class uh, citizens um and definitely not just they've dehumanized they've what's that they've dehumanized us i was just saying it's definitely not just conservatives that forget i mean i talk to a lot of like liberals who also Mm. don't seem to have any awareness that you know puerto ricans are american citizens and that this is a part of our country and that we're all this together or not at all yeah, the Puerto Ricans have gone to war, like fought a lot of wars all over the country for the U.S. Beyond, you know, and beyond. Why should we be treated as second-class citizens? And that's connected to our colonial status. So we need to have a conversation about decolonization, what that looks like, and take leadership and guidance from directly impacted people. There's a lot of people in my race that supported the austerity measures and supported Promesa. Um, 
So there's a movement or that has been a movement in Puerto Rico against these austerity measures for a long time. And generally, I feel that people in the community and directly impacted people are on the right side of history and have the right moral compass. So we need to create a space for them to be in a congressional hearing in D.C. And we need to bring in directly impacted people that suffered with the hurricane and how FEMA was unresponsive and how this administration was unresponsive to bring everything to light and to create a space for them to be heard, to humanize their experiences, so that the whole country and the world can see how we failed Puerto Rico. Yeah, I, I think it's really like frustrating. Sometimes I'm not even sure what the solution should be, because like I, I don't know if you're familiar with this. You probably are, because uh, this is very close to your heart. But the mm -hmm. UN started looking into whether or not Puerto Rico met the decolonization criteria because there was some suspicion that it did not. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they started looking into this over 50 years ago, and they still have not come to a conclusion about whether or not Puerto Rico meets these statuses or not. So the whole thing seems like just like a bit of a ridiculous logjam. What do you think mm -hmm. is the best solution going forward to stop leaving Puerto Rico in America's shadow, in effect? I think that the most important thing is, again, taking guidance from the movement space on the islands. Because even though I'm part of the diaspora, I cannot impose my personal views on what Puerto Rico wants in terms of self-determination. So I think what we need to honor is self-determination and use the powers in Congress to basically, you know, make into law whatever the Puerto Rican people on the island decide to do for themselves. Um, and that's, you know, my view on international policy as well, uh, people's right for self-determination. So I think that we need to be looking at the movement space when making these decisions and use the power of Congress to act accordingly and implement the wishes of the Puerto Rican people. There's definitely like a crisis in Puerto Rico and one of the problems of crises is, is like, if you're familiar with the shock doctrine, whenever there is a crisis, mm -hmm. there is an opportunity and people come in with their money mm -hmm. to try to make the most out of those right. opportunities. Disaster capitalism. That's correct. So can you talk a little bit about disaster capitalism as it relates uh, to Puerto Rico while it's kind of at its lowest point that it's been in a while? Um, a lot of people mm -hmm. see this as an opportunity to cash out. Oh, absolutely. Um... You know, now that Puerto Rico is at its lowest point, like I said earlier, like you see a lot of vulture funds, vulture capitalists coming in there and ravaging the island and basically coming in to say, well, you know, you owe us such and such amount of money. And you know what? We're going to close the school. We're going to close your local supermarket. We're going to, you know, close down, you know, critical municipal services that you need. And, you know, you just got to pay us. And that's just so morally wrong. Um you know, basically preying on Puerto Rico and the bad conditions that they're living in and not caring for people's dignity, not caring that people are mm. sometimes afraid to live in their homes because they fear another storm happening or uh, not caring that there's a lot of schools in Puerto Rico that don't have uh, the earth, the either earthquake ratings. Yeah, I think it is uh, earthquake ratings. They don't have, they're not built in a way that can withstand earthquakes. And then the schools that were closed that did have uh, the right rating to withhold, withstand an earthquake, those are, those were destroyed and closed down. But then the other schools, it's part of the building code, they don't have uh, that rating. So, I mean, I don't know, I don't know what's going on. It's bizarre. Uh, so I think that we need to 
build, we need to have policy in the way that centers human dignity and the way that centers people's safety and humanity. And I don't think that's happening in, in Puerto Rico right now, but what we're seeing with what happened in Rosselló uh, last summer that he was ousted by a leaderless movement of young people, LGBTQIA mm -hmm. and workers. I mean, those are the movements that I'm really excited about and I'm really excited Absolutely. to learn about and participate in because it's great that I'm running for Congress. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, people like me, we don't know every single thing under the sun. You know, we have to surround ourselves by people that are doing the work on the ground so that they can advise us and let us know what is the pulse of the movement so that we can guide ourselves in that direction and create policies that reflect their experiences and their vision for their future. So I'm really excited to see what develops on that front and learn from the creativity of the Puerto Rican people. I mean, that was amazing what they did last summer uh, as a people. Like, they basically organized and they kicked somebody out who's very corrupt and was disrespecting them as a community. And the international community and the United States specifically has a lot of lessons to learn from Puerto Rico because what they did was amazing on the islands. And I was so proud of being Puerto Rican when I saw all of those developments, all those developments happening on the island. I was like, wow, you know, this is, these are my people. Um, and this is the kind of leadership that we need to keep emulating and that we need to keep supporting on the ground at all levels of government and politics. Uh, now, uh, you did an uh, AMA on Instagram. And what were some of the highlights of that? Like, uh, what were the best questions that kind of wrinkled your brain and got you to think and give some good answers on that? Well, people were asking about how they can get involved in the campaign, which, you know, was really great. Uh, LopezForThePeople.com. If anybody wants to donate or volunteer, uh, go to the website. And people ask questions also about gentrification, like what would be my plan to stop gentrification? Uh, and one of the things that I think is really important to explore is this home guarantee platform and are things like national rent control. And also, we should think about commercial rent control, too. Um, because a lot of small businesses, mom and pop shops are closing down because they can't afford the rent in uh, the spaces. So we need national rent control, commercial rent control. We need to decommodify housing as well and target speculative uh, land practices that basically push our communities out. Um, and definitely the conversation about big money and politics, we need to keep having that conversation because a lot of the people in my race and in New York City as a whole, New York City is a real estate town. Rebney, which is a real estate board of New York, has a lot of influence over the housing market in New York. So we have to put an end to politicians being given a pass for taking contributions from the real estate developer industry because what we've seen is that that prevents or limits their advocacy once they get into the positions that they hold and one of the things that i want to mention is that in albany there was the housing justice for all coalition that passed one of the most progressive tenant rent reform laws that new york state has ever seen and that happened because of the activist space so change always happens, you know, from the ground up, like Bernie and many others have said. Uh, so that ha needs to be amplified at the federal level. We need to always look to guidance from the movement to amplify what could be done so that we can imagine our greatest greatness um, and not settle for crumbs. 
so then in this housing activist movement that we saw in New York that allowed uh, these tenant rent reforms to pass, one of the reasons that that passed is because we created the right political conditions for that movement to flourish. So in 2018, there was the IDC, the Independent Democratic Conference, and that was a set of Democratic senators that were basically empowering Republicans to stay in power in Albany. So then the progressive community, me and many others uh, throughout the city, got together to oust those rogue Democrats to create the right political conditions for the housing justice movement to take root and be and have their activism be translated into electoral power. So those are the kinds of things that we need to keep fighting for. We need to be looking towards the movement to create that change that uh, we need to see in our communities. I'm from Atlanta, uh, and we did an entire episode maybe a week or so ago with Rebecca Parson, uh, who's running in Washington, and we just talked about housing. Uh, and one of the weird things that we found that we both had in common was that when gentrification starts in a neighborhood, um, it the people are kind of supportive of it at first because they're like, hey, there's new business coming into the neighborhood. And it's mm -hmm. not until years later that they realize that the cost to actually live in that neighborhood start flying upwards um, with the development. Mm -hmm. Is that an experience that y'all have had in the South Bronx? Or with it no. being a more experienced neighborhood, is it different? Yeah, no, absolutely. So. Uh, many times people in the community feel like, oh, this is a good, a positive thing, exactly what you're saying. But what happens is that many people are not included in the development conversation, in the development process conversation. So a lot of, oftentimes development happens without the consultation of the community, without a lot of engagement. So me having an urban planning background, I would love to explore ways to include the community and be very intentional about including the community, like at the beginning stages, um, at the conceptual stages of coming up with a design or anything like that, and drawing and reaching out to the community for inspiration on what kinds of things we should be building. For instance, there's a very big West African population, and a lot of them have large families, and the importance of building affordable housing with their population and their needs in mind. They tend to need bigger apartments, you know, like not only two bedrooms, but three to four, to five bedrooms. So thinking about housing that can accommodate the needs of a community is really important and creating a space for the community to drive that development and what it looks like, um, I think is a really good step in the right direction. I have a friend that is running for county commissioner um, and she's talked about like her neighborhood kind of being used as like a piggy bank for house mm -hmm. flippers and outside developers. I mean, when you right. get in there and you buy a house that's at a low rate and then you flip it, you are kind of raising that value that now a person that's at that income level can no right. longer afford to live there. Um, right. And one of the things that she talks about a lot are something called community benefit agreements. And yeah, community benefit agreements, community land trust too, is something that's really big that's taking root here in the Bronx. There's a movement that is talking about community land trust and the importance of owning land and figuring out how the community can come together to build something that's their own so that they can drive that conversation and what it looks like. And one of the things also that I don't think we have spoken about directly is the devastating impact of racist housing policies that were imposed by this government here in the United States and intentionally disinvesting in black and brown communities for decades. And the whole guarantee platform is an answer to 
because it has a reparations component, to reverse the decades of redlining that Black and brown communities have gone through historically because of those racist housing policies of the past that were codified into law at the time. Samalise uh, did it. She said the magic word. Yeah, we, we, we usually, yeah, we, when you use the word reparations, um, confetti falls down from the sky in our podcast studio. I dropped oh, really? Feeling. Okay. Yeah. You, you <laughs> we're, 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 a, a, we're a very pro reparations podcast, and it's something we've been putting forward since the very first episode. So it's always wonderful when people talk about it. We don't oh, have yeah, to I'm ask support reparations. <laughs> no, I'm in full support of the Reparations Commission um, that has been introduced continuously because we definitely need to have a serious conversation about slavery and how slavery led to the development of this country in ways that were not beneficial to the African-American community and has led to things like mass incarceration and, um, you know, an endless lack of resolution to race relations in this country. Uh, so we really need to talk about slavery and slave capitalism, and we need to expose young children throughout the country in our public education system so that they can learn that history. Because right now, that history is whitewashed. It's very sanitized. So we need to look at the devastating impacts of slavery, and we need to honor the contributions of the diverse communities, the Black community, the immigrant community, in terms of the development of this country. And, you know, white children need to learn this history as well, because history is often taught from the side of the oppressor. So that's another conversation that, you know, I would love to have. And we need to empower our young children and, and adults too with that history. And it needs to be very intentional uh, because slavery and how it rolled out, I mean, it was very devastating. Um, and has led to a lack of understanding and has led to things like these racist housing policies, redlining, and a whole host of um, and things that the United States should be ashamed of, that they, you know, let go on for so long. So we, we definitely need uh, reparations in this country and have honest conversations about the impact of slavery, um, you know, and how it's led to all these crises that we're facing today. Samalise Lopez, thank you so much for joining us here today. We have covered so many interesting topics and <laughs> thank you. Like you've just had an answer for everything. Like <laughs> oh, <laughs> man, I don't know. ready for us. <laughs> we, we have I mean, I some... These are things that I think about that like people I surround myself with people that, you know, challenge me, right? And expose me to different things. And it's really important to, you know, surround yourself with people that have different perspectives. And one thing that we didn't talk about is the importance of advocating for the rights of the disabled community as well, and mental health and all that. But we can have a conversation about that another day. But thank you so much for bringing me on your show. And I hope that this was informative and that it made sense. And if you ever come to the Bronx and in New York City, I'd love to meet up with you for coffee sometime. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, no, we would definitely. And you can come and help me do some door knocking. Heck yeah. <laughs> Uh, it goes without question that we would love to have you back sometime because this was absolutely wonderful. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I just want to, I know you kind of plugged yourself already, but I kind of want to give you one more chance to plug uh -huh. your uh, website, your Twitter, all that stuff for the audience mm -hmm. and let them know how to get involved. Oh, absolutely. So you can go to lopezforthepeople.com. 
to donate. Uh, one of the things is that this is a very poor congressional district. So a lot of people don't have the means inside the district to donate huge amounts of money. So if you can find it in your heart to donate a little something to the campaign, consider it making a recurring donation. That would be great. And if you live in New York City or anywhere in the tri-state area, you can sign up to door knock to help us phone bank to text from afar as well and my twitter handles are at samelis lopez and instagram is at samelis lopez and facebook i think it's at samelis lopez nyc so those are great ways of staying connected and i hope that we do because i think that we can win this race awesome well thank you so much once again samelis lopez she's running for new york's 15th district congress yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Muchas gracias. Yeah. Uh, ha sido un placer. Same to you. That means uh, very nice to meet you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Well, it's been a fantastic interview. We have been Not Safe for Walks, Leia Rose. Ready I'm Kennedy it. Cooper. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.